You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Joshua. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Joshua chapter 8. Last time we were in Joshua together, we were in chapter 7, and we, we saw the defeat at Ai, and it was, there was really two things going on. There was the, the sin of, of Achan and the sin of Joshua, and it led to defeat at Ai. And Ai was the, the next city that they were to conquer after Jericho. And, and Joshua kind of had it in his mind that, hey, this is no big deal. We're just going to take this. And, and this city is a piece of cake. It's just a little hick, hillbilly town there on the, on the, just east of, or just west of Jericho. And man, this is going to be a piece of cake. And, and, and yet God had something else in mind for them. God had a, a real lesson for them to learn. And they fell flat on their face. They, they, they learned a huge lesson here. Number one is, that God deals with sin real seriously. And two is, don't trust in your flesh. And don't think that you can do this on your own. And those were a couple lessons. And, and out of this lesson, and out of Joshua seeking God, and we see there in verse 10 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why do you lie thus on your face? In other words, Joshua, this isn't a time... To pray, this is a time to go and to do what I'm telling you to do. Uh, the, you've, you've heard from me, now go and respond. And in light of that, they were able to take this, this season of falling and failing and turn it into victory. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight is failure. Because as believers, failure is going to be a big part of our life. We're... We're going to fail a lot. And if you don't recognize that you're a failure and that you fail and that you make mistakes and that you sin and you let people down and you let God down, if you don't recognize that, it's either you're not paying attention or your heart is just so hardened to God and, and you're, you're not hearing the voice of the Spirit. And man, the closer you get to the Lord, the more that you are aware of your sinfulness, the closer I get to the Lord, the more I'm aware of my failings and, and that I have nothing to offer God. And so failure is a big part of the Christian life. And how we respond to that will really define and characterize us as Christians. How we handle failure. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty four sixteen that a righteous man fails seven times and yet he gets up. He keeps going. And Jesus told Peter that time when Peter said, Man, Lord, should I forgive somebody up to seven times? Thinking that this was really, really spiritual of him. Lord, do you see where I've, I've come to? Do you see the place I've arrived at? And Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but 70 times seven. And if God is willing to continually, or if God is telling Peter to forgive that many times, how much more is God willing to forgive us and to pick us back up, to brush us off and to say, keep going. We're going to fail. And we see here in the story of Joshua chapter 8 that there can be victory out of failure, that there can be a accomplishment and God can use it for, for good if we continue on. And so let's pick it up in verse 1 of Joshua 
chapter 8. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise, go up to Ai. In other words, hey, I know they, they kicked your guys' tail really good not long ago. You guys got beat down, you got whipped, and now you're probably afraid. But don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Remember I said I'm going to give this land to you. My promise still stands. I had a lesson for you because you got arrogant and you trusted in your flesh. But now, go out with courage and and with confidence in me. Don't be afraid. And I think God would say that to us. Don't be afraid. Okay, I know you failed. I know that you, you blew it big time. But don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. That's what that word dismayed means. It means to be discouraged, to be distraught, to be down, to get all introspective and to feel like, man, Lord, I've embarrassed you to the point that I, I it's just, I can't ever be used by you. I can't ever do anything right. And there's a point where we have to not feel sorry for ourselves anymore. There's a point where we have to just move on and, and, There's a point where conviction turns into condemnation, and that isn't good. And there's also a point, I think, that the introspection and the feeling bad becomes kind of self-centered and becomes just where it's about you and and where it's really kind of a backdoor arrogance and pride. And I do a little bit of blogging, and there's this guy who, who... posts quite a bit and and participates in this blog quite a bit and his name's Brian. I have no idea who the guy is, but I've come to the point where I do not read his posts because they're always about him and they're just he's always down and discouraged and dismayed and oh woe is me and and I don't even read the guy anymore because it's just like dude, get over yourself. Get over yourself. And that's that's kind of where I think some of us get to and it's in the the guise of, I'm convicted about my sin. I feel terrible. I'm a failure. But in reality, it's a way to get people to pay attention to you. It's a way to just be self-focused in a, in a different kind of slant. The same with people that, that talk about all of the time how, how shy they are and how they, they don't want to ever be around people and they, they, they have a hard time you know, developing relationships. And of course, there's truth to that. And, and of course, there's validity to that. But there comes a point where that just is nothing more than selfishness. It's nothing more than pride. It's nothing more than I don't like people. And this is a way for me to kind of hide what really is going on, right? And so we have to kind of be honest with things, I think. And, and God said, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Take the people with you. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. His promise of God, he's going to give it to them. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So this time they were allowed to take the, the treasure, the spoil, the, the booty, whatever you want to call it, I guess. So Joshua rose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And so 
Last time, he only used 3,000 soldiers when they went to go to Ai initially. Now they're using 30,000. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us at the first that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. And so, basically, Joshua's going to take a few thousand men with him, just like they did last time. They're going to duplicate what they did initially. They're going to go up, and then when the people come out against them, they're going to run off and, and pretend as if they're just doing the same thing all over again. And, and they'll come out after them, and, and they're going to lay an ambush for them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west side of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. And so he's setting this all up. It's going to be just a, a perfect ambush. Most of the men will be lying in wait. They'll use 5,000 men just as they did before. They'll go up to the city, the, the men of Ai will come out, and then as they rush out against the, the fleeing, retreating Israelites, then the, the rest of the 25,000 men will attack the city and light it on fire, and it'll be sayonara. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle. He and all his people at an appointed place, before the plain, but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it. 
and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. And so you can imagine all of these people rush out against the Israelites and they think, man, these people are the most stupid people. We just beat them yesterday, didn't we? Man, don't they learn? They're running out after them, probably just joking among themselves. Oh man, this is going to be great. I love these guys. You know, this is, this is like shooting ducks in a barrel. And then all of a sudden they, they hear flames. Maybe, they could even, maybe even the night was kind of lit up. You can imagine just fire in the background. And they turn around and their city is just going up in smoke. And I'm sure it just clicked. Man, we got a problem. We, we, we fell for something here. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him back to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they all had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not back, did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. So they didn't mess around this time. They learned their lesson, and they handled it the way God had commanded them to handle it. And again, as we read these stories in Joshua, people think, man, this is, is not the compassionate, gracious, loving God that I know of, that I want to serve, that, that I hear about, or that I have sort of created in my mind this isn't this isn't a loving god how could a loving god do this well we've talked about it at great length that god gave them 400 years to repent 400 years for the canaanites to get right if that's not enough time if you're not going to make changes in 400 years you never are you know i would think like four years might be sufficient 40 how about 400 years god gave them meanwhile Israel was toiling away under slavery in Egypt, wandering around in the desert. All of this time, God gave them to repent. They made no changes to the way they were doing things. Here's the other thing. Anytime 
that we see judgment in the Bible, anytime we see suffering in the Bible, anytime we see judgment and suffering in real life, in vivid living color right before you, when you see the suffering that's going on around the world, here's the thing. You have to remember that everything that could ever happen to a man, that could ever happen to a person, Jesus went through it. Jesus took it. He took all of the wrath of God. He suffered in ways that we can't even fathom. Jesus took all of that. He understands all of it. Anything that we could ever go through or ever experience, Jesus has gone through it and Jesus has experienced it. And so when people say, man, how could a loving God allow my child to get this rare form of cancer and and to suffer this way? Or how could a loving God allow people to die of AIDS in Africa? Or how could a loving God allow people to suffer under the tyranny and the terrorism that they're suffering in the Sudan or any other kind of atrocity or calamity that you can think of. We always have to go back to the cross. We have to take people back to the cross and we have to say Jesus went through all of that. He suffered. He can relate to us. He can relate to that that child. He can relate to that individual. And we have to remember that and remind ourselves of that We also have to look and see, you know what? This reminds us of the end result of sin, that sin brings death. This is what sin does. This is the repercussions of sin. And we don't just see God pouring out His wrath and and yet never extending His love. He pours out His wrath, yes, but He also ultimately and eternally took the wrath against sin for us. And so any of these people in AI who wanted to turn to God <coughs> would have the opportunity to because they could look forward to the cross. Jesus had not yet been crucified, but the same blood that was shed for us was also shed for them. And they could look forward by faith and be justified. As the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it's not like God just lit these people on fire. God, it wasn't like God just said, you know what, forget you, and, and didn't extend love and grace to them. They had the opportunity. And the same is true today. And as we read about this, and we're struck with how that God can, out of the ashes of failure, bring amazing victory. That God can take our worst failure and use it for amazing works in our life. I want you guys to be aware of that. No matter how no matter how much you've blown it, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've embarrassed God, no matter how many times you've said, "Lord, I'll never do this again." And then you find yourself doing that again. That God can restore you and God can continue to do his work through you. And I think this story illustrates that. It illustrates what God wants to do with failure in our life because we will fail, as I said, the start of tonight. That God understands that we're going to fail. And when we do, He wants to lift us up. He wants to brush us off and He wants to set us on the right course. A righteous man will fail and fall seven times, but he continues to get up. That's the key. That's what we have to, to do. 
is to recognize the grace of God, to be strong in the grace of God, to grow in the grace of God, to experience His grace that we might extend His grace. And if you're a person that's having a difficult time extending grace, if you can relate to Peter when he said, Lord, should I forgive up to seven times? If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that seems pretty incredible to me too. I don't understand how that's even possible. If that's you and you think, man, how do you forgive? And you're holding bitterness and harboring these kinds of things and harboring ill will toward toward people. I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine, and not Jeff, who will be here with us next week, by the way, so don't hold this against him. Another pastor friend of mine, and there's this pastor in, in, in the Calvary movement that he just can't stand. And he just said, you know what? All I want to do to that guy is take him out in the back and just beat the crap out of him. So that's what I want to do. And I said, you know what? I said, I can relate to you. That's kind of cool. I'm glad that you admit that and that you're honest. But do you think that that's really what God wants for you? He's like, no, but I don't really care. He said, that's, that's just what I want to do, man. He said, that guy just bugs me. And there, there was reasons for it that I won't go into. And I, and I said, you know, you, just, you need to think about, the, even though you don't really see him that much, but he doesn't want to go to the conferences because he doesn't want to see the guy and, and all this. And I said, you know, the enemy is using this in your life. And he, he's going to use it to affect you in a negative way. And you need to deal with that. And the Bible says if you've got, if you know that your brother has something against you and you go to the altar to worship, you need to set down the gift that you are going to, to bring and go and deal with that issue. That's when you you know your brother has something against you. How much more when you have something against your brother? And, and he said, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. But I think even as pastors, we can kind of be disjointed from the very things that we're saying and just think, well, you know what, that's just a side issue and set it aside. And yet it isn't. It's a big deal. And if you're having a hard time extending forgiveness... It's probably because you're having a difficult time experiencing forgiveness, experiencing the grace of God. And if we're not experiencing it, we're surely not going to extend it. And if you're growing cynical and bitter and jaded, which is easy for any of us to do, we act like that the, you know, cynicism is something only for the elite, only for the really intelligent, you know, that really are clued in. No, cynicism is for people that let reality sink in too much and just dwell on things too much. Cynicism will happen to any of us. You don't have to be real clued in. Just live life and you'll be a cynic apart from the Spirit. Just live life and you'll be jaded. There's lots of stuff to make you jaded. There's lots of stuff to make you a hater. But that's not because you're somehow clued in it's because you're not fellowshipping with the spirits because you're not experiencing jesus and so failure man i when i think about failure and, and also just in relationship to to this passion week my favorite story in the bible is, is the story of peter's denial and, and his ultimate forgiveness and restoration thank you to, to ministry. I love that story. If I could preach one sermon 
If, if that, that, that's it. It's my favorite story in the Bible, probably. I love it. I think it, it just sort of encapsulates and captures everything that's, that's biblical. It's just there. And, and with Peter, I mean, here was a guy who spent three plus years with Jesus. And yet he turned his back on Jesus. Stabbed him in the back. Jesus even said it would happen, and he denied it vehemently. Oh, Lord, never would this happen. I will go to prison. I will go to death for you. All these other guys might deny you, but never me. So you can just see he was just so puffed up. And I think he meant it. I don't doubt for one second that Peter didn't mean that. But then, like what will happen to all of us in that moment of weakness, in that moment of just pressure and temptation he fell and he fell hard and jesus comes walking out of the courtyard and their eyes meet and i always picture this and i think all of us can relate to this even though we've never seen jesus face to face and never encountered that you still have that same kind of feeling when you just feel like man i have let god down god down again and and that was Peter, and he just wept, Mark chapter 14 tells us. He just went out and he wept bitterly. The anguish, the sorrow, the embarrassment Peter felt would have been incredible. And I'm sure he felt like it is over. Anything that I could have ever done for Jesus is, is through. It's finished. I'm done. What did he say? I'm going back to fishing. I'm going back to what I knew before Jesus called me. And he, and he took a bunch of the other disciples with him. They were all discouraged. They all had failed. And what happened? We know the story. John chapter 21, Jesus goes out to them. He makes the effort to go out and to restore Peter. I love it also when, when Jesus is resurrected and he, and he meets Mary Magdalene there on that resurrection Sunday morning. What does he say to Mary Magdalene, go and tell Peter and the apostles that I'm not dead, that I've rose from the grave. Go tell Peter and the others. Do you think there was a reason why he singled Peter out? Certainly there was, because he knew that of all of them, Peter needed the hope of the resurrection more than any of them. That he needed to hear that. That he needed to hear that he could be restored. That there was hope for him. That it wasn't over. And he went out, and there they are fishing, and Jesus calls them to himself, and he restores Peter. And Peter had denied him three times. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter denied him. Three times, Jesus restored him. None of that is by accident. It's all for a reason. It's all to show Peter that as much as he had screwed up, as much as he had totally just taken what God had given him and just torched it and lit it on fire, stomped it into the ground, as much as all that was true, that God had restored it, that God had fanned that fire back into existence, that God had taken the years that the locusts had eaten and had restored them for Peter. And, and who is the... The man that we see early on in the church's history being powerfully and mightily used by God. Peter. 
The first sermon ever preached, 3,000 people get saved. God restored Peter in a miraculous way. And, and God wants to do that in our lives. And maybe you've just been sort of down. You feel like you've let God down. You, you've come to a point where it's over for you. And let me remind you that as long as you have air in your lungs, God has something for you. That doesn't mean we just keep doing the same thing over and over and using that as a license to sin. But as Paul tells us in Philippians, man, the stuff that I've done in the past, whether good or bad, I count it as rubbish. And we talked about that in our study in Philippians. But And I don't have a, a very good understanding of Greek or Hebrew, but what I'm told is that that word rubbish is pretty close to a cuss word. Because Paul is wanting us to understand that what he considers that is, a, is just, you know, crap. Nothing. He just considers it manure. That's what he considered it. And he want, that is a strong word there. People that get, you know, all freaked out about language and stuff, man, they don't read the Bible. You've got to read the Bible. There is just some powerful language in the Bible. And that's one of the, the words. Paul says, I consider it like rubbish. Like manure. That's what I consider everything apart from Christ. And that's what we have to do is just say, Lord, take this from me. Take this sin, this shame, the guilt, the failure. God, I give it to you. I count it as rubbish. And now I look ahead. I press on. I set my mind on the cross. And I'm reminded of what you went through for me and my failure. And yeah, we can use the cross as a license to sin, and that devalues the work of the cross. But it also devalues the work of the cross when we don't appropriate it and when we live under the condemnation of the devil. That devalues the cross as well. That hurts Jesus as well. When we don't appropriate His grace and His forgiveness and we walk around acting as if God is mad at us when He's not. He's not mad at us. He loves us. He wants to restore us. And we see Joshua renewing that covenant in verses 30 to 35. It says, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well, as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings according to, to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So Joshua renews the covenant here. In other words, this restoration, this forgiveness, this opportunity for them to take failure and turn it into victory 
was not unsubstantiated. It, it had a foundation in repentance and recommitment and renewal. And, and Joshua, you know, built an altar and sacrifice and the, wrote the law. And here's what I see in all that. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus took all of the law and he fulfilled it. All of the righteous demands of God. And so what I see here in verses 30 through 35 with the altar, the law, the sacrifice, I see, it's all right, Mike, don't worry about it. I see Jesus in the cross. That's what I see here. I, I see Jesus taking the sin of the world, this, our sin, upon himself. And so when we've blown it, when we've failed, when we have just come to a place where we feel like, man, I have embarrassed God to the point where it's over, we have to do one thing, and that's go to the cross. Go back to the cross each and every day. Be reminded of what Jesus did on the cross. Oh, man, I get tired of that simple message. I want something else. The cross, it is finished. The three most powerful words uttered in human history. It is finished. We got to quit acting like there's still work to be done because there isn't. There's no work to be done. It's not about us. Well, man, isn't that going to make people think that they can just do whatever they want to do? No, no, it isn't. When you have an understanding of the cross and when you have an understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, all you want to do is obey him. It motivates you to obedience. And when we fail, which we will, we run back to the cross. We rush to the cross. Anywhere else will lead you to discouragement, to disappointment, to condemnation. We have to go to the cross on a daily basis. That's what I see here. And we have to do what, what Jesus told the church of Ephesus to do. The church that had left their first love. They had left Jesus behind. They had left the cross behind. They didn't lose it. There's a, a stark difference between losing something and leaving something. When you lose it, you don't know where it is. When you leave it, you left it there on purpose for some reason. And, and many of us have left Jesus. We've left the cross behind. And Jesus had this message for that church. Number one, remember the place from which you had fallen. Remember that place that you left me and the cross behind. It may not be like a total backslide where you just said, I don't even want to serve God. It might be that you're out of fellowship with him because you feel like you've led him down to the point where you, you can't even have a relationship with him anymore. That could be leaving your first love. You got to remember that place that you were at. You've got to repent of where you're at presently. Repent of it, which means to change your direction, to change your course. You're going this way. Now you go that way. You remember, you repent, and you return. And you begin to do what you did before. That's what God's calling us to do. That's essentially what Joshua does here as he renews the covenant. That's what Jesus did with Peter as he renewed and restored him. He brought him back to himself. That's what he wants to do with us tonight. If you've been struggling in that way, man, we're going to fail. We are all going to fail. And it's how we handle it and what we do with it and what we allow God to do in us through it that will define us and characterize us as Christians. Let's stand and pray together.
You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.